Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. All right, let's fucking get the let out. Get the show on the road. (laughs) The sooner we're done with this dick, the fucking better. Oh my god, this guy is such a dick. Like, like I was with you before when you were like, this guy's a Mm. dick, he uses people as furniture. And then you read part two. And then, well, actually, then I read the whole goddamn thing. I was like, I just, I trust Jess's judgment. She knows, she knows a dick when she reads one. Yeah, she Um, does. Yeah, no, I, I told you I read the whole thing in one sitting today and I was like, the fuck? I think I must have put what a dick in my notes minimum eight times. So the whole, you read both parts in one sitting? Yep. You're a fucking hero. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Oh, and together we are Whamlet. And this week we're talking about Christopher Marlowe's Tamerlane the Great, parts one and two, because yikes. Yeah, more like Tamerlane the worst, BT dubs. Tamerlane the greatest dick. Yeah. By greatest, we mean worst. Yep, biggest. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. Most weeks, we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Rodney Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 level. But sometimes it's not Shakespeare. Even then, though, <laughs> you will still get all the necessary introductory stuff. So it's everything that you need to know to have a general understanding of the play, or in this case, the plays, mm-hmm. and their major themes, plus some other cool stuff that you get nowhere else, like our goddamn opinions, which, I mean, spoiler alert, we are not fans of these plays, this character. No. It's not. Be better, Marlo. Yeah. I mean, structurally, the play is good, right? Like, it's tight. Yeah. It does the things it needs to do. I it's think just structurally, like a shitty story. It's structurally kind of repetitive, though. All right. You know, it's like a bunch of kings who think they can take on Tamburlaine, and then they can't. <laughs> and then a bunch more kings think they can take on Tamburlaine, and then he murders them. And, yeah. like, kind of, it's a cycle. <laughs> I guess we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> anyway, um... <laughs> This year, this season, there we go. There's my brain. Hi, brain. Um, this season, we have run out of rhetorical devices to do. Like, we've got to the bottom of the deck. And so we're, like, on the hunt for a new feature to go along with our 101 episodes in place of a rhetorical device. Um, so it's currently TBD. We're going to skip it for now. Holla at us if you have any ideas. Yeah, I guess. I don't have any ideas, so... Uh, but first, moving on, since we are talking about a contemporary of Shakespeare and not the man himself, we're going to re-meet the contemporary. So this is a brief review of facts about Christopher Marlowe, as if you could ever forget, but we did talk about him when we did our 
Faustus episode. And we yeah. talked about him in depth when we did our Jew of Malta episode. Yes. So, Great. We've so talked we, about we him a bit. A, yeah. He's, yeah. You, he, we've had proper introductions elsewhere. Yes. Um, yes. If you want more, like, Google exists. Um, right. But here are some things to refresh your memory yeah. if you're like, wait, which guy is this guy? Yeah. He's these are guy. some these are some fun highlights. He was born in 1564, same year as Shakespeare, and died in 1593 at the ripe age of 29. He was totally a spy. And he was stabbed in the eye. He had good hair. And he wrote in a pair. With Shakes and Nash, sometimes. But never Thomas Kidd, his former roommate who accused him of blasphemy and homosexuality to the Privy Council, and maybe was part of the reason he was murdered. <laughs> we rhymed until we didn't rhyme. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote, like, uh, six-ish plays? Um, Like-ish? Yeah, like, like nine, wrote, if you count wrote, all three of the Henry Sixes. Well, and you don't have uh, Massacre at Paris on here either, which is a... oh. That's weird. I just copy and pasted this list, so... Yeah, well... Well, There you go. So, let's start with Dido, (laughs) Queen of Carthage, which he wrote with Thomas Nash in 1587, about... Mm -hmm. He wrote the first part of Tamerlane the Great around 1587. And Tamerlane the Great Part 2, 1588-ish. Yep, he wrote The Jew of Malta in 1589. And then all three parts of Henry VI with William Montgomery Shakespeare... Uh, in like 1591-ish. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Faustus in 1592-ish. And then Edward II in 1593-ish. Also, he wrote some poems at some point. And as I said just moments ago, Massacre at Paris, which is right. uh, an unfinished play yes. that I have not read. Nor I. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, Marlowe is also responsible for the introduction of blank verse to the English stage, which is unrhymed iambic pentameter, as I make a point of shouting at my students every fall (laughs) and spring. Uh, Unrhymed iambic pentameter is what blank verse is, and that held prominence for most of the next 50 years until the playhouses were closed after the English Civil War. Right. They often refer to it as Marlowe's mighty line. And let me tell you, reading two Marlowe plays in a couple of hours today. It is mighty, and it is like a drumbeat, that iambic pentameter. It is constant. During and heavy. the English Civil War is when the playhouses were closed. Oh, okay. Not after. I was just like, wait a minute. That's not right. Cool. <laughs> they were closed in 1642, which is when the single the Civil War started. Right on. Um, yeah, there All it is. Right. So oh, look be- at that, an immediate correction. <laughs> <laughs> So, jumping into our summary section of the play, we always begin with a five-word unhelpful title, and mine is Xenocrates' Stockholm Syndrome, like, whoa. Early modern drama's biggest dick. Boom. Yes. Great. And here are some dramatis personae from both parts, um, but only the really important ones. And let me tell you, this was tough to trim down. Fucking right. All right. So we're going to start with Tamerlane Obbs. He is a Scythian shepherd in part one. And in part two, he becomes the king of Persia. Mm -hmm. Then we have Tichelis, who in part one is a follower of Tamerlane. And in part two, he's still a a follower of Tamerlane, but he's also the king of Fez. Then we have Yusum Kasani who is in part one, a follower of Tamburlaine, and in part two, still a follower of Tamburlaine, but he's become king of Morocco. Hmm, are we seeing a trend here? Yes. Right? So then weird. we have Theridamus in part one, who's a Persian lord and a follower of Tamburlaine, and in part two, again, still a follower of Tamburlaine, but also the king of Algier. 
we also have Xenocrate, who is daughter of the Sultan of Egypt. Um, and then in part two, or maybe at the end of part one, she becomes Tamburlaine's wife after right. he kidnaps and rapes her. Yeah. That definitely happens in part one, but like at it, the end. Yeah. At the very, yeah. at literally the very end. Yeah. He's like, we're going to get married now. Okay. Thanks. Bye. End of play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, okay. Then we have Bajazeth, the emperor of Turkey, who only appears in part one. This is the guy who gets used as a footstool. But I'm getting he, ahead of us. Okay. <laughs> uh, he's married to a lovely woman named Zabina, who's also only in part one. Right. They have a son, Calipine, uh, and he only appears in part two. Um, Tamburlaine has a son. His name is Caliphus. He gets murdered for cowardice. Hey, that rhymes. <laughs> uh, in part two. Yeah. He has a favorite son named Amiris, who's his, his third son. And then I guess the middle son, the, the overlooked son, middle child, <laughs> uh, is Celebinus. Yes, and then we have various backstabbing kings who all think they can take Tamburlaine on, and then they lose to him, or they die, or they're paraded around like horses, pulling him in a chariot. There are also, as you might expect, various women and some children who Tamburlaine slaughters, drowns, or sends off to be raped by his soldiers. Yep, because he's a prince. No, he's a king. But, like, the worst kind. Okay. But he's, like, a shepherd. <laughs> yes. Homie thinks he's God. He it's does. Fine. He thinks he's yeah. better than God. Oh, I my know. gosh. Okay. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay. So, uh, this begs the question, why is this place so goddamn popular? It's not. It's so not. And with really good reasons. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I was doing a little digging on this, it weirdly has had, like, a good long hundred year run just like popping up in the 20th century like it was real weird um it in its own time it fell out of popularity pretty quickly it was a smash success when it premiered right yeah but then yeah dropped yeah. off a little bit and then after marlo died um there's no surviving record of it being performed after 1595 and then uh and you know ned allen who was the star actor of the admiral's <laughs> men aka your boyfriend ben affleck from shakespeare and love the documentary <laughs> Your um, boyfriend. <laughs> I just, mine. I just love how arrogant he is. He's like, I am Chamberlaine. I am Barabbas. Okay, whatever. Oh yes, Will. I am Henry VI too. Ah, ah, just oh my gosh, my panties. Okay, um, <laughs> I just love it the way he says that. Anyway, anyway, um, and then it popped up again in 1688, weirdly, and then in 1713, and then 200 years later in 1919 at Yale at the Yale Dramatic Association. Then at the Old Vic in 1951, and then at the Stratford Festival in Canada in 1956. Like in the fi- you know what? It's, it doesn't surprise me at all, actually, that in the 50s, like they got real excited about this play. Yep. I'm just going to let that live there. Uh, 20 years later, the Royal National Theater, uh, starring Albert Finney. You might remember him from such hits as, you know, Big Fish. Um, he was a real stud back in the day. In, in 1976, he played the title role. Peter Hall directed that one, and that's generally considered, like, the most successful production of this play in the 20th century. Uh, then in 1993, the RSC did it. Um with Anthony Schur as Tamberlane and Tracy Ann Oberman as Olympia. And we'll get to Olympia later. She's like a blip in this play, but it's kind of, it's kind of great. I laughed out loud. Um, I shouldn't have laughed, but I did. Jeff Daly. I don't know who that is. Did this uh, for the actor's theater of 
American Theater of Actors in New York. He did part one in 97, and then a whopping six years later, he revived it for part two in 2003. Weird. Uh, Avery Brooks played the lead role for the Shakespeare Theater Company in uh, late uh, uh, October of 2007 until January of 2008 for, did I say Shakespeare Theater Company already? Directed by Michael Kahn. So that was in D.C. in 07-08. The ASC did it at some point around this time as well. I just don't remember when. And I don't remember if it was parts one and two or just part one. It must have just been part one. Yeah, but I do remember them. If you're going to do it, you're going to do part one. You're not going to do part two. So at some point in here, the ASC did it as well. Uh, Then there was a combined production of parts one and two. Um, in 2014 at the Polanski Shakespeare Center in Brooklyn. Then there was another production in 2015 at the Lazarus Theatre Company in London's West End. Mm -hmm. And then just last year, the RSC did it again in August of 2018. Like, I don't fucking understand. I don't understand. Um, It's an important play. I mean, it's Marlowe's first, like, hit. And it... I don't like it, but I... I, it's I, it's important. <laughs> um, then there was this little dust-up controversy in 2005. Uh, there was a production of Tamburlaine at the Barbican, and it was accused of, quote, deferring to Muslim sensibilities by amending the section in part two of the play in which Tamburlaine burns the Quran and excoriates the uh, Islamic prophet Muhammad. Uh, and that sequence was changed in that production to be instead defiling books of all religious texts. Uh, and, you know, they said it was purely artistic and they wanted to focus the play away from anti-Turkish pantomime into an existential epic. I actually think that's a good choice. Me too. For the modern world. Um, Okay, so there's that. So it's got like a long sort of twisted production history, despite the fact that very few people outside of our circle know this play at all. Um, I feel it's not a If you're going to know Marlowe, it's going to be Faustus. Right, yeah. You're not going to know this one. It's not a well-known play, and yet, and yet, in the last hundred years, it's, I think, popped up more often than it should. Mm -hmm. So it's time for a summary of uh, both parts. Are you ready for this? Do you want to do your noise? (gasps) Oh, yeah. It's been so long since we've done a 101. I know. Nice. It's summary time. We will now summarize Tamburlaine the Great, parts one and two, for you in a segment that this week we are calling a slightly more detailed account of why Tamburlaine won the dick bracket. Yep. Y'all are going to learn. Oh, timer. Right. It has been a while. We we are out of practice. We're rusty. I mean, you know, we started with some 201s and I think we got lazy. (laughs) I definitely am lazy. 201s are so much easier. All right. Okay. I'm ready. Oh, uh, we should maybe say how we're going to do this. Oh, yeah. Part one and I'm going to do part two. Yeah. Basically, I'm talking summary of the entire part one and I'm not dividing it into acts. Nope. I'm just talking part one in basic, basic terms. Okay. Yep. Part one opens in Persepolis. The Persian emperor dispatches troops to dispose of Tamburlaine, a Scythian shepherd, and at that point, a nomadic bandit. In the same scene, his own brother plots to overthrow him and assume the throne. The scene then shifts to Scythia, where Tamburlaine is shown wooing 
quote-unquote wooing, capturing, and winning Xenocrates, the daughter of the Egyptian king. After promising one guy part of his battle spoils, a.k.a. the Persian throne, Tamburlaine takes it for himself instead. So he lets those brothers betray each other and then fend for themselves. Uh, why would they have seen that coming? Uh, now a powerful figure, Tamburlaine turns his attention to Bajazeth, emperor of the Turks. He defeats him handily and his tributary kings, capturing the emperor and his wife, Zabina. The victorious Tamburlaine keeps him in a cage and feeds him scraps from his table, which they refuse, releasing Bajazeth only to use him as a footstool. Bajazeth later kills himself on stage by bashing his head against the bars of his cage upon hearing of Tamburlaine's next victory. And upon finding his body, Zabina does the same thing. Meanwhile, Xenocrates all like, yeah, he raped me, but I think I love him now, question mark. And after conquering Africa and naming himself the emperor of that continent, Tamburlaine sets his eyes on Damascus, a target which places the Egyptian sultan, Xenocrates' dad, his soon-to-be father-in-law, directly in his path. The leaders of Damascus think if they leave four virgins in his path, they might sway him, but it doesn't. He has them murdered instead and their heads put on pikes at the city gates. What a guy. Xenocrates then pleads with her future husband to spare her father. He complies, instead making the sultan a tributary king. The play ends with the wedding of Tamburlaine and Xenocrates, who is crowned empress of Persia. Yay! In part two, the play opens again with two guys who are trying to defeat Tamburlaine and instead they betray each other because, like, that worked so well the first time. Uh, Meanwhile, Tamburlaine is grooming his three sons, who are kind of like Lear's three daughters, to be conquerors in his wake as he continues to attack neighboring kingdoms. His eldest son, Caliphus, prefers to stay by his mother's side and not risk death, and in doing so, he incurs Tamburlaine's wrath. Meanwhile, the son of Bajazeth, who is Calipine, right? Calipine? Calipine. We said Calipine earlier, but it's Calipine. fine. Calipine. <laughs> Escapes from Tamburlaine's jail, and he gathers a group of tributary kings to his side so they can avenge his uh, Calipine's father, so Bajazeth. They're Avenging Bajazeth. Yes. Great. Calipine and Tamburlaine meet in battle, where Tamburlaine is victorious. Finding, however, that his son Caliphus remained in his tent to play cards during the battle, Tamburlaine kills him in anger, because mm-hmm. that's good parenting. Thanks, Dad. Tamburlaine then forces the defeated kings to pull his chariot to the next battlefield, declaring, Holla, ye pampered jades of Asia! What, can ye draw but 20 miles a day? Which, like, yikes. Upon reaching Babylon, which holds out against him, Tamburlaine again shows us why he's the biggest dick in the early modern canon. When the governor of the city attempts to save his life in return for revealing the city treasury, Tamburlaine has him hanged from the city walls and shot. Which, like, the definition of overkill, but, like, whatever. He orders the city's inhabitants, men, women, and children, to be bound and thrown into a nearby lake. What a prince. (laughs) Right? Lastly, Tamburlaine scornfully burns a copy of the Quran and claims to be greater than God. In the final act, he becomes mysteriously ill, but manages to defeat one more foe before he dies. He names his youngest son, Amorous, as his heir, and bids his sons to conquer the remainder of Earth as he departs life. There is no justice. The bad guy just dies of his own accord. That's fine. Thanks, Marlo. The end. Yep. The end. 
The end. I no felt so Tamerlane. robbed. Like, Calpine doesn't even, like, pull a Fortinbras and come in at the end and, like, oh, look, all my work is done for me. Look at all, look at this kingdom I'm going to take. Right? We don't even get that. Like, it's nope. so frustrating. There's no resolution. No. There's no poetic justice. Fucking Marlowe. It sucks. I know. I know. <sighs> I know. Uh, I'm so frustrated. Okay. It's time for I some know, tips babe. and tidbits. Here's some cool stuff about the text, I guess. All right. All right. Okay. So um, let's start with, like, the texty stuff. So the play in both parts was entered into the stationard register on the August 14th. The August 14th? <laughs> on the 14th of August, 1590. Both parts were published together in a single black letter octavo that same year by the printer Richard Jones. The text is usually referred to as O1 because it's octavo, not quarto, so O instead of Q. Um, have we talked about black letter before? Will our listeners know what that is? I don't think so. Okay. I don't um, so if you don't know what that is, imagine in your mind hole um, <laughs> the like thick, gothic, medieval looking letters that's like ye oldie, blah, 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 and it's all like extra pointy, that shit, that's black letter. Um, it's really fucking hard to read, and I hate it. So fuck black letter. There was a second edition of the text in 1592 and a third in 1597. No substantial changes were made between texts. Um, the plays were then next published separately in quarto by the bookseller Edward White. Uh, he published part one in 1605 and part two in 1606, which replaced, not replaced, God damn it, reprinted the text of the 1597 printing. Yes. Um, Edward White is no stranger to publishing plays. He did a lot of Shakespeare printing. Maybe not a lot, but some. Um, if you hang out with early modern printers of playbooks, you will know Edward White. That's, that's a name that will not surprise you. Um, so I want to talk briefly about some of the languages, not languages, I can't, guys, I'm sorry. I spent eight hours writing my dissertation today, like You're all pretty much words. in one stretch. Damn. So I, I'm, I can't word anymore <laughs> and i can't brain You've like reached your composition yeah, quota like, for the day it's all right i'm i'm kind of useless right now You're and i just want to useless. apologize it's okay but you know <laughs> we're with you we support you gotta gotta write that dissertation yeah so um all righty so there are a lot of dramaturgical challenges to this play yeah, no shit. Uh, Aubrey's going to talk about some of the practical staging challenges uh, in a minute. But there are also things like characterological things to think about when staging this play. And one of the biggest hurdles is what the fuck do you do with a main character who drives the play who is so fucking unlikable? Mm -hmm. Like... How how do you how do you do how do you Tamburlaine? Um, I don't have an answer, but I do have a couple examples of how he the challenges in in playing him. Like, mm -hmm. what does a production do, and what does an actor do with this stuff? So, mm -hmm. also shout out to my girl Courtney for pointing me to this. She is the reason 
that I live. Yay, Courtney! <laughs> she is my one true love. She is... I thought Becky was your one true love. Becky is my one true love, but also Courtney's my one true love. Um, I can have... <laughs> More than one, <laughs> one true love. <laughs> Can't I? I'm a modern woman. I do what I want. Amen, um, sister. All right. Okay. So we're going to start in act one, scene two of part one. Both of these examples are from part one. Great. Okay. So uh, Tamberlane is talking to Theradamus mm-hmm. and is trying to get Theradamus to uh, join with him to do the things. Yep. And he says... Forsake thy king and do but join with me, and we will triumph over all the world. I hold the fates bound fast in iron chains, and with my hand turn fortune's wheel about. And sooner shall the sun fall from his fear than Tamburlaine be slain or overcome. Damn. So, Tamburlaine... <laughs> thinks pretty highly of himself. I feel like this is a trend with Marlo's main characters. It like, really is. They, they all really, kind of think they're invincible. They do. For, they all kind of like fly too close to the sun. Yeah. Like maybe Edward too. Yeah. He might be the exception. May, but like barely because he still true. kind of like does what he wants. Until That's true. He's like, oh, wait, I can't do what I want. Yeah. Anymore. But like these guys like Barabbas, Tamburlaine, mm-hmm. Faustus, mm-hmm. they are hella arrogant. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, and I mean, that's what, that was four lines-ish that I read. Yeah. And that's just fucking representative of Tamburlaine's character. Yeah. Like, that's not even the strongest thing he says. That's a pretty big motif throughout parts one and two for his speeches. So what do you, what do you do with that as a director, as a dramaturg, as an actor, as a whoever? Like, how do you take this character and make him appealing to the audience in any way? Or do you just say, fuck it, like, maybe he can't be appealing and maybe that's the appeal? Like, you know, you because you can't, I mean, maybe you can't, I don't, I don't think you can or should just leave it, right? I think choices yeah. need to be made about how to deal with Tamberlane's ego. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know what? Sorry. I, what I was thinking uh-huh. about the whole time I read this play this morning uh-huh. was for all of my grousing about how this play has been done way too many times in the last 100 years, I right. do feel like nowadays with certain mm, megalomaniacal <laughs> um, personalities in many mm-hmm. different, running many different mm-hmm. countries, not just ours, mm-hmm. but I do mm-hmm. also mean the Cheeto in chief. Um I mean, it, it feels like like that kind of epic level ego mm-hmm. um, is sort of normalized now. And I, I feel like it might actually, like, if you just kind of let it be as an actor in this day and age, it will read very Trumpian, yeah. but it will also read because of that as kind of real. Yeah. Which is scary and awful. Y- yeah. Um, but but I, it, it would work. I mean, God, it's so timely right now. It is. Um, can I get you to open your text of part one and do some I reading? Shall with me? try. Yes. Okay. I have my digital my digital Project Gutenberg text. Okay. Hang on. Okay. Part part one. You say? Yeah. Part one. Uh, top of two three. Great. Okay. Hang on. Act two, scene three. Top of two three. Yep. And just read Cosro for me. Great. Now, worthy Tamburlaine, have I reposed in thy approved fortunes all my hope. What thinks thou, man, shall come of our attempts? 
for even as from assured oracle, I take thy doom for satisfaction. And so mistake you not a whit, my lord, for fates and oracles of heaven have sworn to royalize the deeds of Tamburlaine and make them blessed that share in his attempts. And doubt you not, but if you favor me and let my fortunes and my valor sway to some direction in your martial deeds, the world will strive with hosts of men-at-arms to swarm unto the ensign I support. The host of Xerxes, by which fame is said, which by fame is said, to drink the mighty Parthian Araris, Araris? Fuck it, I fucked it up. <laughs> Was but a handful to that we will have. Our quivering lances shaking in the air and bullets like Jove's dreadful thunderbolts enrolled in flames and fiery smolding mists shall threat the gods more than Cyclopean wars, and with our sun-bright armor as we march will chase the stars from heaven and dim their eyes that stand and muse at our admired arms. Yikes. Yeah. That's a, again, like Trump level promise that he does not mean to pay. Stars from heaven. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yikes, yikes, yikes. The oracles of heaven have sworn to royalize the deeds of Tamberlane. Like. Yeah. (sighs) And remember at this point, he's like starting out as a shepherd. Everybody makes sure that you know he's a shepherd, 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 and a thief no power at this point he's coming from nowhere yeah and there's no fucking backstory to this guy either it's like oh did you hear about this noisome shepherd that showed up Mm -hmm. out of nowhere and is conquering bitches like what the fuck (laughs) shit also i should have said this earlier uh this is like tamberlane was a historic figure yes he was a nobleman though he was not a shepherd yeah he's not a shepherd but he lived and like did some shit so yeah real dude um anyway so i just i I don't really have a whole lot else to say about that other than like, how do you do and why do you do? Yeah. Um, Because see aforementioned eight hours writing my dissertation today. Well, and to (laughs) add a complication to that, like there's another part of Tamburlaine. He comes out a couple of times in part one, at least. And again, also in part two where he's like, he's talking about his wife or his wife to be Xenocrate. His captive slave. His captive slave and then his wife slave. Um, but but like he's got these like love monologues about her. Yeah. And about like his feelings for her and how even though she wants him to slow down and stop conquering bitches, he's not gonna, but he loves her so much. Um and again, it begs the question of the actor, like, the fuck do you do with that? Like, you know, lesson number one in acting is to you know believe your character no matter how bad they are and like try not to judge them but jesus christ yeah like oh my god it's it's real hard it's real and like that that by itself is a challenge just to not judge the dude and try to play that part honestly which not sure not sure um so that all that to say some production perspective um in aubrey's humble opinion don't do this show I mean, just I don't just do it. Come straight out and disagree with you. I think you can do it. Oh, you can. And I, I, don't I kind think of think should. it's timely and relevant right now. Yeah. See, I just don't think the world needs any more needlessly cruel men, like That's even fair. fake ones. That's fair. Like I don't need to see that. I don't understand why this play has been remounted as often as it has. Uh, and here's just a fun little list of the things you would have to stage were you to put this on. Yes. Are we ready? Lay it on. Lay it Buckle on. Buckle up. Okay. Ready. 
The first thing you will not have to stage is any kind of battles or like traditional stage combat. Nope. All you need is a trumpet player who can play tuckets and alarums because all of the battles, literally all of them, happen off stage. Like it's literally just people on stage listening to battle sounds and trumpet sounds like burp, burp, of victory and they go, oh, we're victorious or oh, we're not. I'm like, that's it. Uh, then you have pretty early on a woman led off to be raped who then apparently falls in love with her captor rapist and, and becomes complicit in all of his murder. And she knows it. She has a rather disturbing conversation with one of her servant slash captors. And he's like, why are you still thinking about this rape? Like he raped you, but it was a while ago. And she's like, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess I love him now. It's very upsetting. Um, and then there are more women, sacrificial virgins, led off stage to be decapitated. And then more women, some concubines, led off stage to be gang raped. That's not awesome. Uh, and then there's a guy brought on stage in a cage and then stepped on as a footstool. That same guy and his wife are starved to death and then, quote unquote, brain themselves. That's in the stage directions. They brain themselves on that iron cage. Uh, and Zabina, before she kills herself, she sees her husband and describes his head as being like cleft in twain or some shit. Like, make that happen. Great. Then there are two different sets of kings used to pull in a chariot with Tam Tam in it on stage three times. <laughs> I just got tired of typing Tamberlane and I just yeah, wanted I to you. call him Tam Tam. I get it. Okay. It happens three fucking times, though. You need three times a chariot to be pulled on stage with dudes pulling it. Okay. Then there's this other woman, Olympia, who's the wife of some guy who ill-advisedly tries to stand up to Tamberlane, tricking that idiot Theradamus into slitting her own throat. She's like, oh, just kill me. I want to be with my dead husband and my son. And he's like, no, I love you. Let me get with you. And she's like, no, put this ointment on. It will save me from wounds. Slit my throat. I'll show you. It's going to be, it's going to work. It's great. And then he actually does it. He actually slits her throat. And he was like, what? You tricked me. There's no such ointment. And she's like, I'm dead. It's so dumb. I laughed out loud, though, when that happened. I was like, this dumb fool. He does. Oh, my God. Okay. But she does this a few scenes after stabbing her own son and then burning him with her husband on a pyre on stage okay that's pyre number one there's a second one coming <laughs> on stage okay then we have the governor of babylon which we talked about before hung up on a wall in chains and shot at with arrows by tam tam and his army then we have tam tam stabbing his own son on stage then we have a giant bonfire number two in which he burns the quran and mocks all the gods which like hashtag on brand marlo but still uh and then you have to have a hearse or a dummy of dead xenocrity to drag around for most of part two because she dies pretty early on in there and then tamberlane's like i'm gonna drag around her dead body and she will not be interred until i die too so you have to have a have to have a dead body to drag around so, ergo, uh, from a very pragmatic level, you either need a big-ass budget for all of this to look really fucking good, in which case, draft a really good trigger warning for your program and then ask yourself why you're subjecting everyone to this, or you find low-budget ways around it, and then it potentially looks comical and, like, bad, but not in a good way, in which case, ask yourself why you're subjecting everyone to this. I just... I get... You know, even from my own mouth, I have acknowledged how timely some of these characters feel. 
all the more reason, though, I feel like this crosses the line in so many ways into needless violence that I just don't feel like we need to subject people to this. It feels so senseless to me. So I just say don't do it. Don't yeah. do it. Read it for shits and giggles, but don't fucking do it. Um, and that's what I have to say about that. All right. Super. <laughs> oh, fuck. We need a game. Yeah, I know. And that's why I put the notes in here. I legit refuse to play fuck, marry, kill with any of these characters. Because mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. I do feel like that happens literally too much in this play. The yep. fucking, the marrying, and the killing. Yep. A little too much. Um, same point with choices were made. Because there are some real bad choices all the way through, which I just listed off. Um, if you want do, to, we could do line roulette. I mean, do we have to play a game? I guess we don't. Because I like it as a 101 feature, but... I mean, yeah, but like we're sort of breaking all the rules now. It's true. It's season you three. Know? It's the Wild like, West. If you want me to talk about this Comedy of Errors production, I'm going to take up some time. Oh, yo, okay. Yeah. Well, then let's so, um, all right, skip so to that. In lieu of a game yeah. this week. Yep. Uh, I, <laughs> that, that was my noise. kazoo. Making the it's, flaccid dick noise. Yeah, well, that's what's coming. So, um, I <laughs> mean, not. not, but... Um, <laughs> we both so, said it. So, last week, question mark, I talked about that shitty production of yes. uh, Measure for Measure that I saw. last week, yes. Well, so today I'm going to tell you about another shitty production I saw no. that somehow made me angrier than the Measure for Measure. That's tough to do. That's a high bar. And this was a production of the Comedy of Errors. <sighs> that play should never make you angry. Right? Right. It should only give you happy feelings. Right. It's a fucking comedy. It's in the title. Right. So, sorry. um, it was the same company as the Measure for Measure oh, people. Of course it was. Uh, slightly different cast, different director, but same company, same general rigors of production, by which I mean to say there were none. Measure for Measure was bad, thoughtless, but just bad and thoughtless. Mm-hmm. Um, Comedy of Errors, on the other hand, oh was sort of actively offensive and damaging. Oh, no. Let me take you through it. So the pre-show was a thing that happened with pre-show music. Oh, no. Um, and one of the songs they sang was Kiss the Girl from our seminal classic, The Little Mermaid. Sure. Which they made into a joke about consent. What, did they, like, act shit out? No, so they, like, sort of at the at the end of every, like, verse, stanza, chorus, refrain, whatever, uh-huh. they were like, but make sure you get permission first and, like, verbal consent only <laughs> and, like... <laughs> Wait, they ad libbed that? They yeah. said that? Yeah, oh, wow. they so, okay. you said it out loud. And it was not okay. cute on Aww. a college campus in 2019 to Aww. be joking about consent. So, you know how <laughs> the play starts with Aegean's giant speech. Yes. That is so fucking long. Yes. And kind of boring, but fucking important because it sets up what has happened yes so oh my god did they cut it they didn't cut it but what happened was behind the the guy playing Aegean 
There was interpretive fabric slash music slash dance slash grown I love me a good interpretive dance. In diapers. What? Okay. Um, that was so fucking distracting that I know this play and I did not hear one single word that Aegean said, not only because I was so distracted, but because what was happening behind him was so loud that he could not be heard over it. Wow. Which is a problem. I wrote, nope, in all caps. Um, (laughs) And I said, trust the fucking text, maybe? Literally no one heard anything he said, and that speech is important. So in the speech, there's like, oh, the ship hit a rock. And what they fucking did was they brought out a goddamn cardboard cutout of The Rock. Oh, no. And, like, mimed running into it. Like, it was fucking hilarious, but also, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, just let the text do the thing. Also, there was a contact slap, which is motherfucking dangerous. And I guarantee you they did not have a fight person do that. Uh (sighs) Uh-oh. Both of the Dromeos were alcoholics which is a choice and I think just like fall down drunk the whole time yeah like they had flasks that they kept pulling out and like got progressively drunker which like why no that's why why are we doing that alcoholism is so funny right you remember how alcoholism is like historically a just hilarious disease. Remember that? Remember that time? I mean, drunk characters like Froth in Measure for Measure are funny mm-hmm. because they're written to be drunk. Mm-hmm. Like, I, Dromeos, we mm-hmm. need them to have their faculties because that's how mm-hmm. they're funny. Mm-hmm. That's stupid. Yeah. So then I started thinking about colorblind slash color conscious casting, right? This is something that we've talked about on the pod a lot. Yeah. So one... Uh, one of the Dromeos, and I forget which one because I can't tell them apart ever. <laughs> one of the Dromeos was played by a black man. Okay. Um, and also there was one other black man, like ra- like randomly the like ship captain at the end. Was it the Dromeo that did the spherical speech or the other one? <sighs> I don't remember. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was thinking just sort of thinking about it while the show was happening. I was like, what, what are we doing to an audience and, and, a um, an already marginalized body by asking your predominantly white audience to not see color and, and um, suspend that disbelief, right? To, I mean, you have to suspend disbelief anyway, when you, have two people who aren't twins playing twins. Right. But when you're asking the audience to conflate color as well as other things, like what kind of violence is that doing to the already marginalized body? I was just sort of toying that concept in my head. And as I was thinking that, Uh let me tell you what happened on stage. (sighs) The wife, Adriana. Yeah. Yes. Gets mad when her Antiphilus doesn't come home for dinner. Yes. Right? And then she's like, why didn't you come home for dinner? Yes. And he's like, 
the fuck, whatever, you know, that scene. Yeah, where he's like, bitch, I don't know you. Yeah. Yeah. In this production, Adriana began to beat Antiphilus. Uh And I'm like, okay, so this production is asking me to laugh at domestic violence. Cool. Great. That's, uh uh-huh. And then Antiphilus tapped out and made his Dromeo, his black-bodied Dromeo, go in in his place. So in 2019, in Alabama, this production asked an audience to ignore uh, a white man beating his black servant, which had happened previously, because, you know, there's the violence in this play. And then had asked its audience to laugh at the image of a white woman choking a black man. Way to go, Alabama. (laughs) And I tasted blood in my mouth. I was so angry. And had I not had a giant bag and had been with people, I would have gotten up and left at that point. I was so, so mad for this audience of about 100 people, which included children and also people of color. We are staging this and asking people to laugh at it. And no one in the rehearsal room thought to stop and go, what are the optics of this? It's, it's not just thoughtless. I think it's actively damaging and irresponsible and not excusable. And I, this was at the end of June. Mm-hmm. It is now the end of August. And I'm still so mad about it that I almost can't form coherent sentences. So, um, those are the big things. The production also asked me to laugh at animal cruelty, because sure, why not? What? Yeah, so you know that line about, like, fetch me an iron crow? Yeah. Right? Like, fetch me a crow, fetch me an iron crow, whatever that line. So, for cheap laughs, they had just, like, a fake Halloween crow on stage that the Dromeo picked up and then, like, mimed breaking its neck and beheading ah! and, like, plucking. Which, like, yeah, because animal cruelty is so funny. Oh, my God. Right? Right? Um, also asked us to laugh at sexual harassment between... <sighs> um, you know, when Antiphilus of Syracuse is trying Hitting to get on it the with, sister. Yeah, Luciana. Yeah. Dude. And I wrote, she at least laughs at him, but only after spending his speech looking horrified, which, like, buh Wow. Yeah. Also asked us to laugh at an alcoholic being beaten, not just alcoholism in general, which, you know, historically, so funny. So funny. Wow. Yeah. And that takes me to the end of my notes. So um, I I may have said this last week. I have spent months trying to draft an email to the director and producer, these these two men, the two men who directed these two productions, the two mm-hmm. white men who directed these two productions. And I just I'm getting nowhere because I'm I'm so I'm inarticulately angry about it. And then, of course, they're. I get into the weeds of like, I am a grad student. They are, one is a tenured professor and one is, 
not really involved with the university at all, but, Mm -hmm. like, they're in positions of power that I don't have, and what's the blowback going to be on me, and... Could you send it anonymously? (sighs) Yeah, maybe, but I don't know. It it feels like the kind of thing that if I'm going to complain, I want my name attached to this, right? Like, because these are things I fucking believe in. Like, how dare you? (sighs) Yeah. I'm... Like, I kind of want to cry right now. I'm so angry about it. I'm just, I'm... (sighs) So anyway. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, from the, from like inside the production, I, it's, it's really hard to, you know, I imagine that those actors, maybe some of them, I would hope, had moments of hesitation of like, whoa, you know, like, what are the optics of this? But oftentimes Mm -hmm. actors especially actors of color um, feel like they can't say no. Yep. Uh, you know, cause I mean, everyone knows actors are replaceable. So yep. like if there's something you don't want to do, then they will instantly fire your ass and hire somebody else who's willing to go there or do whatever it is they want to do. So it's a, it's a precarious situation to be in um, as an actor too, when you're put mm-hmm. in that position. Mm-hmm. So like, I feel for them um, that sucks. Yeah. That really sucks. Yeah. Oy. So anyway, uh, what do you got for like gossip? Um, just 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 a couple of things that folks may have missed <sighs> over the summertime. Uh, Danielle Brooks, aka Tasty, one of the best characters on Orange Is the New Black, uh, played Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing. For um, is it the Public Theater that puts on the Shakespeare in yeah, the Park stuff? Yeah, the Public. Yeah, uh, the Public did that uh, Shakespeare mm-hmm. in the Park I heard mixed things about it from hard to please New Yorkers but like sure. fuck off I love Danielle Brooks she's the also, best you know they recorded it and it's gonna be on PBS <gasps> that's so exciting okay yeah. so I, I really okay so I don't know when to that's gonna it. happen but yes I really I don't know. Oh, no, I wanna see but it it's gonna be part of the great performances series oh, that's awesome yeah, so, oh, so excited. sometime in the next I don't know six to nine months maybe hooray I love yeah. Danielle Brooks and she um She's oh God, she's so great. She's just such a good actor. So and good. played it while pregnant. Cause she Did is, she? Yeah, I didn't know she was pregnant. She, yeah, she's currently pregnant. Oh, I, I don't think she's that. had her baby yet. Yeah. Oh. So well, good for her. There's yeah. that's the second time I've heard of someone playing Beatrice um, while pregnant. The other one I was don't know, uh, like Miriam Burroughs. She sure. was. I think she was early pregnant, but sure. I mean, I don't. I'm not all up in her business monitoring her <laughs> so I am not the pregnancy police. Sure. But just, like, that's a cool thing that she did, so. Yeah, good for yeah. her. Um, also, over the summer, the Livermore Shakespeare Festival, my old stomping ground, they did a production of Othello starring a trans actor named Skylar Cooper, who, incidentally, um, before they transitioned, played Othello as a woman uh, and <gasps> cool. now have played it again as a trans man that's Uh, so interesting i know i I read this really great article about it their take on the character and if it's yeah yeah um i need to find that article where i read that about throw it up on the website yeah um but it was directed by michael wayne rice who was a longtime uh, actor with livermore shakes um but he had some some really definite angles he was going for um directing othello and again he i'm sure he did a great job i wish i could have gotten out to the west coast to see it but like Mm. wow for Mm -hmm. some groundbreaking strides in casting 
and in directing um, these these two incredible people of color uh, for this production. So like, way to go, Livermore Shakespeare! Like, good job, guys. And it got rave reviews too. Like, it was a hit all summer. So like, I'm really proud of them. Um, then there's that thing that you texted me about this dude and his <laughs> yeah, open right. letter about quote unquote diversity. We were going to go yeah, from talking about yeah, actual yeah. diversity to talking about ideological so, white guy diversity yeah. so, like, for the, SAA. The Ugh, pardon me while I pick up my eyes. They've rolled out of my head. The beginning-ish of August-ish. Um, yeah. I don't know when the letter was posted, but it, it made the rounds in my Twitter feed. Yes, the, like, same. the first week of August. Um, when you sent me the link and then like my Twitter yeah, blew up with it too. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah. Jesus Christ. So uh, the, the Shakespeare Association of America has um, been working really hard over the last couple of years to foster diversity and become a more inclusive conference and membership body and so on and so forth. There are a lot of really great initiatives that are working really well. And this old white guy from Oxford. Yep. Could I say that with any more derision? (laughs) From Um, Oxford. Posted on his website, on the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship website. Yep. An open letter to SAA about like basically calling them hypocrites yeah because while they welcome all of these other marginalized populations they still do not welcome people who don't think that shakespeare wrote shakespeare <laughs> like how dare you compare yourself to actually marginalized right? populations yeah you're like, so persecuted you people old are over here he's, he's like trying to give lip service to ayana thompson and he's like oh yes during ayana's tenure we've really mm-hmm. opened up the diversity like the mm-hmm. actual diversity uh-huh. and like talking about shakespeare and race and stuff also oxfordians deserve a place at the table yeah, right? <laughs> which like it's, Come on. it's it's literally called the Shakespeare Association of America. Right. right? Um, oh, I don't think we have an actual party line on authorship, like as a as a member organization. Yeah, no, I don't it's not like you have we, to we swear have, like, an oath or something. We don't have like, a creed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, however, you know, one of the one of the points he made in his letter was like there's no room at the conference for people who don't actually want to talk about Shakespeare, which like, bitch, have you been to the conference? There are not that many actual Shakespeare panels like at all. There are some certainly, but you mean that don't want to talk about Shakespeare, the man is that I don't think there are any that want to talk about Shakespeare, the man, but like, we, we, you know, when we go, we want to talk about just like early modern shit. You know, we want to yeah. talk about Sydney and Spencer and textual stuff, like what books are made of and like eco crit shit. Like, yeah, the the plays are fine. They're not hurting. Obviously, yeah. I like them. <laughs> if you haven't gathered that, what are you doing here? And is it your first day? <laughs> but <Right. laughs> like my 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 very good dude you're no one no one is oppressing you you're not being persecuted no the only person the only person who doesn't think that shakespeare wrote shakespeare who is actively being persecuted is alan tarica oh i was gonna say mark rylance but because he's a big old crybaby about it yeah but he he was the what 
AD of the globe. Like he's doing okay. Yeah. So yeah, he's all right. Anyway. Yeah. No, nobody's persecuting his lily white ass. Okay. Nope. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So that was just some, that was some, you know, some stuff that you mm-hmm. missed over the summer. <laughs> um, <laughs> some good stuff, some ridiculous stuff, some, some bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's something that we missed that you would like us to, you know, shout out in a future gossip section, some, some Shakespeare, Shakespeare victory you had over the summer that you would like us to revisit. Please hit us up. Quick. We did hear this week from um, that woman whose name has gone out of my brain. Michelle Uh sounds right. Let me find it. Hang on. Let's get it right. The production of Macbeth. She'd written to us like how to Macbeth on no budget in a small town with no Shakespeare. And we were like, here are some ideas. And then she did it and she wrote us back and sent a, a lovely little yeah she sent us an update from yeah. Michelle Swanson yes um out there in doing her thing in yeah. Williston yep wherever the fuck that is <laughs> sorry girl uh yeah, she says, thank you for your advice. We wrapped mm-hmm. the show, got a, had a fabulous time. They got written up in the paper. She sent us the link to the article. That's so great. Which I read. It's yeah, me too. Sweet. I read yeah. it too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Good for you, Michelle, girl. We're so proud. We're so proud. Like, yeah. you so keep proud of on you. keeping on. Yeah. Congratulations. Like, yeah. good job. And yeah. starting up a theater company. Yeah. And a Shakespeare, a Shakespeare summer thing. Good for you, man. Yeah. That's hard. Yep. So. You're, you're doing the Lord's work. Good job. Yeah. Great. So, Moving on. Uh, um, that's it. Yeah. We uh, misspoke a lot on this podcast and then immediately corrected ourselves in the moment so I'm just gonna skip the corrections, corrections. I nope. issued them the real time sent them. <laughs> real time corrections okay so thank you so much for listening we hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started tune in next week for our first 301 of the season we're going back to everybody's favorite witchy play it's Macbeth Ooh. but villain Thou that wishest this to me, fall prostrate on the low, disdainful earth, and be the footstool of great Tamburlaine, that I may rise unto my royal throne. Whamlet out. Whamlet out. We're not going to step on people to do it. (laughs) If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For show notes and other fun stuff, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. You can email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. Hurlyburly Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Well, needs must. Yeah, I I just took like a couple hours this morning and read it. Yikes. (laughs) Yikes. Yep. I wanted it fresh in my brain and then now it is and I'm sad. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Accurate. (laughs)